The state rests their rebuttal case in the Alec Murdoch case. More secrecy in the Lori Vallow, Chad Daybell cases. This is what the juvenile justice system produces. Grown-up criminals, and then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. It is February 2023, but before we get to the docket, you know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't, like if you do, leave me a comment below and hit that little bell for notifications. And remember, you can listen to us anytime, anyplace on any of your favorite podcasting apps. All right, let's get to it today. Tonight, we have our Tuesday night live program on all of our locations. You can find us Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, Roku, and Rumble. So please join us. And tonight, what are we going to do? Something special because we're so close to the end of the Alec Murdoch case. We're going to do what we kind of say for our Patreon members, which is a call-in line. So we'll give you the secret crime talk number, and you'll be able to call in and we can discuss what is on your mind tonight. So join us 6 p.m. Mountain Time. All right, the Alec Murdoch case, the state has rested. But yesterday afternoon, an expert witness called by the defense delivered testimony that at least one legal commentator believed may sow reasonable doubt in jurors' minds during a very graphic testimony yesterday of Alec Murdoch's double murder case in South Carolina. Timothy Pombach testified that a lot of blood and brain matter would have covered the person who shot and killed Maggie and Paul Murdoch on the night in question. That was kind of a big deal. Then Mr. Palmback um, was asked, do you have an opinion based upon basically scientific principles of probably more likely than not, whether there was one or two shooters who murdered Maggie and Paul on the night of June 7th of 2021? Mr. Palmback said, my opinion is that the totality of the evidence is more suggestive of a two-shooter scenario. The defense attorney then asked the expert to explain. He said, in Paul's scenario, we know where the shooter of the shotgun had to be. And that would have been oriented directly over Paul's head. And we also got a chance to see what was the effect of this dynamic explosion and the contact. And that you can see multiple and large pieces of skull outside and even in throughout the feed area. We also saw large amounts of tissue that were projected up onto the ceiling and the door. You see hair all the way up into the door. And of course, you see blood literally everywhere within there. Now, the prosecution began their case in rebuttal today. Why? Because, well, this humble little commentator believes that the defense scored some major points in their case in chief for the defense. So the prosecutors called Ronnie Crosby, one of Murdoch's former law partners, on the stand this morning. Um, and the prosecutors started questioning Mr. Crosby about his relationship with Mr. Murdoch's son, Paul, specifically their rides around the uh, Crosby's property looking for hogs. Within minutes, defense attorney Dick Harp Julian objected to the testimony, followed by several more. Crosby also testified to Murdoch's relationship with law enforcement and said that Murdoch told him he checked Paul and Maggie's bodies before calling 911, saying it was clear to me watching Murdoch's own testimony last week while he was working. Crosby said it was the first time he'd heard Murdoch say he was actually at the kennels the night of the murders, a claim that he had repeatedly denied to law enforcement. 
The prosecution then called Dr. Ellen Reimer, who performed the autopsies of Maggie and Paul, put her back on the stand. Now, she is a... um, at the Medical University of uh, South Carolina, where she's a pathologist, and she was called for a second time to respond to testimony from a pathologist called by the defense, Dr. Jonathan Eisenstadt. Dr. Eisenstadt said that he believed that tears in the skin would have shown the downward direction of the shot and argued that Reimer erred by not checking for soot that would have indicated that the shot that killed Paul was to the top of his head. Now, the defense witness, Robert Palmback, a forensic scientist, also testified that he believed that the evidence was consistent with a shot to the back of Paul's head. Taken altogether, Palmback argued that the evidence at the scene supported the defense theory that there were two shooters. She said, I disagree with Eisenstadt's conclusions. There is no way that these features are consistent with a contact gunshot wound to the top of the head, Reimer repeatedly stated. Reimer said that she did not search for soot because the wound was obviously an exit wound. Reimer said that based on her 20-plus years of experience doing autopsies, she knew that the damage from the contact shotgun wound to the top of the head would have been much worse. His entire face, he would have had tears. His eyes would have been hanging down or even been lost. Now, arguing that the orbital bones would have been shattered in in this particular case, if that were, in fact, her belief as to the scenario. In contrast, Paul's face was largely intact, Reimer said. I know what you saw was awful, but the damage would have been a lot worse, she told the jury. Reimer also told prosecutors that defects clearly indicate that it was an entrance wound, which would not have been apparent to someone just looking at a picture. Multiple clues clearly indicate that the wound that killed Paul came from below and from at least a few feet away, Dr. Reimer argued uh, during uh, cross-examination. In a somewhat testy back and forth with defense counsel, uh, Reimer stated that wadding in Paul's shoulder wound and the fact that the brain was largely intact all led her to this conclusion. This meant that she did not need to x-ray Paul's skull or shave his head to check for stippling or soot that would have indicated a close-range entry wound. I did not shave the head because I was confident that that was an exit wound on the top of the head. It wasn't necessary for me to shave it at all. When pressed about her methodology, Reimer defended the integrity of her analysis but conceded that, you know, she could have been a little more thorough in her documentation. I guess in hindsight, uh, is always 2020, she argued. But she did note that her notes were there for her. They're not always accurate. And she wishes that she had maybe taken more photographs. Hmm. Certainly can call into question your methodology there, can't you? Hmm. Anyway, the fourth witness was uh, Paul Magnell. He was a digital forensic examiner with the Charleston County Sheriff's Office, who was also a task force agent with the Secret Service. He stated that he performed a series of experiments to determine how much speed and force was required to activate the iPhone's raise and wake feature. He uh, used experiments performed in his office over the weekend to state that the screen on Maggie's phone likely would not have turned on if it was tossed like a Frisbee. Nine out of ten times, the phone did not turn on, he testified. He also stated that he tested various ways to activate the raise to wake feature, including knocking it off the desk, tossing it, and turning it end over end 10 or 20 times. He stated the feature uses the phone 
accelerometer to determine whether it should activate the screen. It is calibrated to respond to a slight amount of movement over aggressive motion. In cross-examination, defense attorneys uh, Phil Barber objected and moved to strike McManigill's testimony, arguing that he lacked expertise in the construction of the phone and made no records of his experiments he did over the weekend in his office. Judge Newman overruled the objection. Then Dr. Uh, Wilson came to the stand and Dr. Kenneth uh, Kinsey, the chief deputy at the uh, Orangeburg Sheriff's Office, refuted the conclusions drawn by defense witnesses over the past week that uh, someone, Murdoch's height, could not have fired the shot that killed Maggie and Paul. It could have been somebody between 5'4 and 6'4 or even 7'4 inches. Uh, Dr. Kinsey uh, showed how a rifle could have been held at different heights or the shooter could have been kneeling. Kinsey firmly argued against the validity of the conclusions drawn by the defense expert, Michael Sutton, that Maggie's shooter had been somewhere between 5'2 and 5'4. Sutton came to his conclusion based upon the angles of the bullets holes in the cardboard siding of the quail pen near the Moselle kennels. He says, I place no confidence in that angle from the quail pen, Kinsey said, demonstrating that a dowel used to measure the angle would be manipulated inside the soft cardboard. Similarly, he argued that you could not determine the trajectory of the shotgun blast from a single pellet as multiple projectiles exited a shotgun traveling in different directions in a cone-shaped area. The notion of being able to look at the evidence and determine that is unscientific, he argued. The state has then rested its case against Alec Murdoch after their sixth witness uh, came to the stand. The defense had no rebuttal witnesses to the prosecution's case in chief. And guess what? The court recessed for the evening. The jury is expected to be taken to visit the Moselle Kennels Wednesday morning. And then we're going to do closing arguments and then jury deliberations will begin. It is finally here, ladies and gentlemen. Finally, let me know. Innocent? Well, let's not go that far. Guilty, not guilty, or hung jury? Leave me a comment below. Next on the docket, more secrecy in the Lori Vallow. That's right. There was a hearing held Monday afternoon regarding DNA testing in the uh, cases for Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow. The continued, the hearing will continue on Thursday. Uh, apparently, Judge Stephen Boyce scheduled Monday's hearing on Friday afternoon after prosecutors received reports from a lab regarding evidence. The judge stated, we had a hearing last Thursday, and at that time, the court was advised that some additional reports, as they related to DNA evidence, were on the way, but the prosecution had not yet received those reports, Judge Boyce stated um, on the record. And then a report was received later that evening and disseminated to the court and the defense counsel. Both Chad and Lori appeared via Zoom from their respective jails. Uh, Mr. Pryor, Chad's attorney, also attended virtually from his Boise office. And uh, the prosecutors were in attendance along with Jim Archibald and John Thomas, Lori Vallow's attorneys. Shortly after the proceedings started, though, Boyce said the new report may or may not be admitted into evidence. Because of that, he called for a portion of the hearing to be held privately without members of the public able to do it. That's right. Let's litigate in chambers. Unbelievable. Anyway, Mr. Pryor objected to closing the hearing. He must be watching Crime Talk. This could uh, potentially taint jurors who could be called to serve in this case, and it's 
necessary to seal the record and close the hearing for purposes of discussing candidly with counsel the DNA test report that has been received. Everyone in the courtroom asked to leave for about 45 minutes until the closed portion was finished. Then, after being invited back into the courtroom for about 10 minutes during a recess, everybody was asked to leave again. For about 15 minutes later, the public was invited back to their seats, and Judge Boyce announced that the remainder of the hearing would be postponed until Thursday. The court also then advised that another report regarding DNA um, was received by the state today, and uh, in order to provide time to the defense to prepare the court, the hearing will be continued. The next hearing is scheduled Thursday at 9.30 a.m. So here's, here's a couple of things. One, first of all, litigating in chambers. Unbelievable to me. Let's face it. Look at the Murdoch case. Everything has been done open in the public. Nothing, nothing outside of uh, the public at all. Everybody on that jury panel was aware of the case. But guess what? They found people that said, I can put aside what I've heard in the press and base my decision based upon what's taking place. I'm glad Mr. Pryor is objecting. I think the, what the court is doing is a complete abomination to the Constitution to um, allow the public to be present. The, the defendant is titled to a public trial. Well, that includes all the critical stages of the proceeding as well. And the problem is you see that you allow this, it happens again. We've already got it in the Brian Koberger case where nothing is being uh, allowed to be done in public again. It's unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it. And who would have thought South Carolina can do a whole double homicide, double homicide of a well-known person and still find a jury and be able to televise every minute of it and still get a fair trial. But yet in Idaho, they somehow have this overreach, or this compelling interest to protect the defendant's right to the fair trial. Are you kidding me? It's because they want stuff done in private. They don't want to be second guessed and they don't want to be criticized. That is it. All right. It just drives me bonkers. So good for Mr. Pryor objecting to this being done in secrecy. And another thing, why is the court getting reports sent to him from DNA? The court has nothing to do with DNA evidence. Why is the court getting involved in this unless it hasn't been turned over in a timely manner? That's it. Why is the court reviewing discovery and reports in the case? Once again, unbelievable. Unless the court needs to make a legal ruling on that particular evidence, at the appropriate time, why is he doing it now? Why is the judge so engaged in this case? It makes no sense to me. Next on the docket, you wanna see the uh, results of the uh, juvenile justice system? Yeah, take a look at this punk, okay? This is a teenage boy accused of uh, punching and kicking his teaching assistant in a uh, row over a Nintendo Switch which will be charged as an adult after being arrested for battery three times in 2019. Yes, this punk is named Brendan Deppa, 17, just several months from turning 18. And he is being charged as an adult in the Seventh Judicial uh, Court in Florida. And so he's gonna be transferred to the adult court. So we get to use his name and say what a punk he is. And he's being held on a $1 million bond. And he's facing aggravated battery charges, which is a felony after he allegedly attacked his uh, teacher, Joan Nadick, who is 57 years old. He's a big kid. 
In fact, he's 6'6", 270, and look at the, what's caught on camera. He's beating the uh, mother of two to unconsciousness. This could have been a homicide, ladies and gentlemen. He literally knocks her to the ground before kicking and punching her unconscious, hitting her at least 15 times in the back of the head. Now, those convicted of aggravated uh, battery of a school board official in Florida can face up to 30 years in prison. Now, Depa, who's also been ordered not to have contact with the teacher, which that'll be easy because he's in custody, goes before an arraignment on March 6. Now, Mr. Depa uh, was charged with battery three times in 2019. Yeah, three times. He previously completed a Department of Juvenile Justice program. Yeah, that's called Prison for Kids, mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons why they decided to charge him as an adult, because he's had plenty of time to be reformed, rehabilitated as a kid. Didn't quite work out, probably because they coddled him and said it really wasn't his fault. It was the society in which he grew up in that created the violence that he now perpetrates on others. Hmm. Well, anyway, according to the state's attorney, Mr. Depa did actually and intentionally touch and strike the victim against uh, her will, and in doing so, used a deadly weapon and intentionally or knowingly caused great bodily harm, permanent disability, or permanent disfigurement. So, like I said, this kid's uh, six months shy of his 18th birthday, brutal attack upon a teacher. Yep, someone's got to be made an example of, and I am okay with it. Like I said, this could have been a homicide. I mean, that's just violence. That's what happens. You get more of what you tolerate, ladies and gentlemen. Somebody's been telling this kid it's not his fault. He shouldn't do that. And guess what? This kid obviously has got some impulse control. If he's going to beat somebody unconscious for taking away a freaking video game that he has in school, are you kidding me? They should ban all of these phones and everything at the door. He gets it taken away and he beats him. I say lock this kid up for 30 years. He's had his shot. He's an adult. He, he just needs to go away. Bottom line. Next on the docket, our dumb criminal. Well, on Friday, somebody slashed the tires of seven police cars outside of a station house in Queens, New York. Police released surveillance video and asked for the public's help in identifying the mad, the man clad in a brown hat, multicolored jacket, and black pants. On Sunday, somebody walked into the same station to report that his car has been stolen. He was wearing a brown hat, multicolored jacket, and black pants, just like that. Yep, the police arrested 74-year-old Joseph Patino of Brooklyn, who now faces charges of criminal mischief. The police say they were able to quickly recognize Patino as the vandal when he arrived at the station, and then he confessed. Not exactly sure what the motive was. I guess he, I don't know, didn't want the police to be able to go and arrest somebody that stole his car? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But Mr. Patino, guess what? You're a dumb criminal of the day. At least you didn't go beat somebody up. Still, don't mess with other people's stuff. Drives me bonkers. Anyway, that's all we have for you today. Thanks for watching. Please join us 6 p.m. Mountain Time on all of our channels. We'll be here live and you'll be able to call in and we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk.